Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, welcome on today's episode of Partially Excited. We got Pete Lunton. This guy has his own podcast called Fire in the Belly, and I discovered him there probably a few weeks ago, and we chatted, and this is a very interesting guy. And you can catch him at his podcast in Fire in the Belly. Hello, welcome to the show, Pete. How are you doing today? Brilliant. Mighty. How are you getting on yourself, Aaron? It's a cool word. I like the word mighty. Where did you come across that? It's, it's a brand I've taken on for myself, so I'd be known as Mighty Pete. And as someone said to me the other day, why'd you do that? And it's like, well, why not? Way back, actually, and, and I was trying to remember where the word Mighty came from, but when I was a young fella, there was a, a fishing boat I used to see, and it was called the Mighty Haggis. And for some reason, it always stuck out for me. So uh, I've reinherited the Mighty. That's the brand. I sort of, you know, have a, a company called Mighty 247. I have myself, Mighty Pete, and, you know, it's uh, it's good. You know, it's just it's one of those things is uh, to see is to be. So uh, if you keep calling yourself that, you will become it. It's interesting how the language we use becomes integrated into our our subconscious and how we portray ourselves over time. Absolutely and to be honest with you Aaron it's something really in the last two to three years that I've actually been consciously aware of. I think subconsciously I've probably been aware of it. It's really only as I say from the age of 37 and a half that I took a a decision, a choice and decided that actually um, I was going to sort of try and do something different. Well, we'll maybe come into that later, but yeah, 37 and a half was my, my turning point, my tipping point, as, as you might say. Yeah, let, let's kind of peel back Pete to when he's a child. Tell us about where you grew up and how you um, how your family taught you and integrated the characteristic of Pete. So yeah, so as a child, I, I was born in Bangor, County Down in Northern Ireland. Through the years, we actually spent a couple of years in Saudi Arabia out there. My father worked out there. So, you know, we, we traveled a lot. We moved around homes a lot. So myself and my sister actually were sort of best of friends up until teenage years. And then we <laughs> we went our separate ways and such, but came back. But um, yeah, no, so we traveled the world and I was you know, sort of white blonde hair, blue-eyed child, and, you know, especially in the Arabic countries and stuff like that, I mean, you know, it's, it's you were almost sort of, you know, an, an unforeseen, a blonde-haired child, you know. I was fairly shy, but I, I just kept myself to myself. You know, I loved to uh, play with the Lego and, you know, and I just there, I just pottered away myself, you know, and, and I quite often sort of disappear for the day and come back again and just, you know, sort of looked after that. So, you know, our childhood was, you know, listen, it was it was excellent. We had everything we ever wanted, and you know, not not in a in an extravagant way, but you know, certainly in a way that you know we were loved and supported, and you know, we got to see parts of the world. I mean, I have photographs of me all around the world. I don't remember all of it, unfortunately. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a challenge to go back there later on in life and, and to see that. So yeah, no, we had a really sort of privileged privileged upbringing, you know, and myself and my sister were were the um, you know we're the sort of together the most really. 
in traveling, it must have been hard to, you know, uproot in one place and then go and root in another place. How did you figure around that? Yeah, it was, I can't, at one point we'd, I think we'd moved house, it was something like nine times in 10 years, or there was some statistic there that was, you know, I can't can't remember now, but it was, I mean, it's, it's quite disruptive, certainly all through my primary school years that, you know, it had been in different places. So ironically, you know, when we eventually sort of settled down, it's, that's where, you know, uh, I was primary seven, which I suppose is 10 or 11 years of age, we sort of stopped moving at that point and, and I met friends in primary school who I'm still friends with today, you know, so it was it was hard enough, you know, especially for children, they don't always realise, now kids also do sort of make new friends very quickly too, but, you know, it's I don't have anyone before that period of my life, you know, it's, it's, it's family, family were always my direct connection before then really, so um, yeah, interesting times, I think it just makes you closer as a family because you have to be more, probably introverted or look after yourself. Yeah, and what did your dad do, Pete? So my, my father was an electronic engineer, so um, he would have you know been involved in, in Saudi Arabia. They were setting up what was known as the super grid, so the electricity grid, and he would have been involved in that. Really tough work at the time, you know, and especially because it was quite restrictive for, for women, you know, in terms of being able to, you know, to drive or to be out in public and things like that. Yeah, so through the years, I mean, he, he worked for the electricity boards and, and ultimately sort of got to a fairly senior position in Northern Ireland Electricity until he retired. So he was a career man through and through he more or less did his 40 years sort of up through the ranks and through the company so um, it's a bit different than nowadays you know to get promoted people jump from company to company in those days it was you know you did your time and you kept your nose clean and you moved up and up so he was a career man all through and electronic engineer. Did that kind of progress you into doing construction later or watching your dad being an electrical engineer? It did in a way you know certainly the the method in which my father used used to undertake his work, you know, it was quite logical, and that that's always appeals to me. You know, I, I like logic, I like the structure of it. You know, my dad had a capacity. I would call it a learning capacity. You know, he had the same set of tools, and he could apply it to different things. Because ultimately, he he ended up did a lot more on the environmental side as well. But with the same skills and tool set, he was able to transfer across. And that's probably the same for me. You know, I came out with construction and building engineering was my, my trade. And now I've ended up on a podcast, you know, so it's uh, not exactly a straight path, but certainly I think it's the skills. I think it's the tenacity. It's the the ability, you know, learning how you learn. Not something that's come to me later in life, but also then, you know, how you can, you know, actually expand your mind and, and grow at the same time. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of great traits there, but probably got a lot of it from my mother too, as well, to be honest. What traits do you get from, from your mother? There was an expression that you'd have to be up early to catch my mum. And it was a great relationship, really, because my dad was the doer and my mum was the thinker. So my mum would come up with a great plan and, and the ideas and, you know, a real sort of, she was a very, very clever woman. And then my dad was the sort of the force behind it that sort of made it happen. So I think it was it was the innovation side, the entrepreneurial side that actually came from my mother's side, and then the execution and the you know the doing part came from my father's side. So it was a it was a great mix, and indeed my you know both sets, but predominantly my my mother's side of the family are all you know very strong entrepreneurs through and through, and I think that's where I've got it in my blood. So um, yeah, it was super interesting. It's interesting how father fathers can teach us one aspect, and the mothers can teach us one aspect, and later in life that kind of meshes into one of who we are as an individual you know absolutely i mean my mother you know in in some ways you know i was always probably closer to my mother growing up and that's kind of the way it feels but then you know i think i was close to my dad too but my mum had a had a great way of managing us and supporting us so you were very much sort of you know we were brought up to sort of stand on our own two feet too you know and very much led by example you know, my mother. So no, it was, it was different, you know, it's just, unfortunately, I lost my mother at 17. It's not, there's never an easy time, put it like that, you know, and uh, at that stage in my life, it's it's gone from being kind of a child and a teenager, sort of starting to become an adult. So instead of being a mother that, you know, that sort of she was there to curtail you and keep you on the straight and narrow, you know, she was going to the stage where she was becoming almost a friend and a confidant, you know, but unfortunately that's the stage I lost her, but you know, that's, that's life, unfortunately. How did that feel for you at that time? The problem is, I suppose, how I felt and what I did were two different things. I would say at, at 17, you don't know your, your backside from your elbow, to be honest, you know. I think I just wasn't emotionally equipped at the time, you know, to do with it. It's just, I mean, that there's senses and feelings and all that, 
you just I just couldn't put into play at all. It was just strange. I mean, it was very practical. You know, we, we you know, unfortunately, mum went through just about 11 months of she was diagnosed on Valentine's Day and then January 27th, the following year, she, she died. You know, so it was 11 months going through that. And yeah, it was interesting. And, you know, she was actually in her in her last year. She had done a, a follow up degree in, in Queen's University and she was she was actually given an honorary position there to uh, she was given her degree. She wasn't able to complete her course, but they gave her the, the, the actual result anyway. The helplessness of it is, is pretty tough, you know, to see people go through that. You know, it's brutal. It really is brutal. You know, and there's a, there's a lot of questions and you know, I spent a long time sort of going, why, you know, and you try to sort of blame and, you know, especially at that age, maybe, you know, you have to, you know, you try and put it into a box, you try and explain it, but, you know, excuse the language, but the only thing I could come up with is going, shit happens. I, I couldn't explain it, you know, it wasn't my fault, wasn't my mum's fault, wasn't anyone else's fault, you know, and ironically now, sort of being a father, I mean, I, I look back and, and how, you know, you see it from a different angle, you know, for a mother to leave her child, um, you know, or any parent to leave their child behind is, God, it's heartbreaking. So, you know, seeing it from the other side, but yeah, unfortunately it's standing in the graveyard, someone's words, and I, I never remember who, but the more I said, you know, listen, take your time, you know, it'll take you a year to get over this. In my head, that sort of set a timer and a year came and went and just felt numb, you know, just nothing. You know, there's there's no highs, no lows. Basically, seven years after that, I discovered that basically that had been a point of depression and the, uh, it actually takes me seven years to get over the death of a parent. You know, and I think it's just my, my brain goes into hibernation mode. So it was interesting times, you know, interesting times. Over those seven years, how did you get out of that numb to uh, create this amazing life for yourself? It was through that. And, and it's weird because, you know, my father at the time didn't quite know how to handle me. You know, I was, I was quite strong headed for a 17 year old and then you've school and university. So my dad was very practical, helping us in any way we could. Thankfully, the school at the time, you know, they actually sort of got me in touch with counsellors. I sort of had counselling at that time as well, which was, you know, it was a great help. And I, I sort of, at the time, I probably wasn't the most appreciative, but it, it actually it did help a lot. After university, and you have a lot of change going on in your life anyway, so it's hard to tell what's change and, and what's, you know, sort of a, an emotional scar. You know, it really went on for for quite some time and I ended up going back and, and seeing a counsellor at college because it just, the best way I described depression anyway and, and it hadn't really sort of probably been diagnosed at that point was that it, it's just a it's just a blandness you know it's just everything's just mediocre you know the dog could die and I would be like oh that's inconvenient or you could win the lottery and you'd be like well that's inconvenient because then I have to go and take the check to the bank you know it's just everything was just you know like sort of wading through treacle it's just hard work uh, it's very hard to sort of have a high or a low on that you know so what can tend to happen is you're, you're searching for a reaction and what can happen is people sort of go for go for extremes you know extreme drinking or you know alcohol or, or certain things to try and be able to actually stimulate the, the highs to really get the energy levels going i mean i worked a lot through university and, and doing university and everything else and, and i listen i loved it i mean i but i always sort of described the feeling was you know being lonely in a crowd uh, you know that's something that always resonated with me you know you could be in a room full of people and actually just not feel connected to anyone you know so probably my default space was to um you know to introvert you know and that's that's what it was so you know you don't quite know how to put senses and feelings into play you know, it was it was a, an interesting time and then i remember you know eventually got to the stage where i just got i got fed up of it to be honest you know it was it was like a split within me you know there's part of me wants to sort of crack on and do stuff and there's part of me sort of didn't i was just sitting in with the doctor and she said listen it's just you know she says now you're obviously wanting to get on but you know i was all anti-drugs i was anti-everything and, and just sitting with the doctor and she says listen you know you are going to come out of this he says you have two choices you can either wait for a year or more for your chemical levels to come back around you whatever chemicals are involved in depression or you can you know take antidepressants and and fast track the process as mentally you've moved on but chemically you're not that was enough to actually get me to start taking antidepressants and fairly quickly after that it sort of life sort of turned around yeah so that was it was a long it was a long procedure and a long process you know and took took a lot of time yeah it was sort of a it was an interesting time and really once I came out of that then I was you know really springboarded forward in terms of you know I'd already started buying property at that point and you know there was a lot going on in my life 
that's when I started to feel like I was, you know, I was sort of being at one with myself and felt great, to be honest. Had you studied construction during this point or after this point before you started buying property? It kind of all happened together. So I, it was a four, let me think, it was, I think it was a four year course. It was honors, an honors degree I did. Um, so I bought my first property when I was 20. So I was second year and second or third year in the university. I can't remember. And yeah, it was kind of just, it just made sense at the time. There was a little house that came up and it was actually a friend of a friend's and they were selling it. And I always loved Monopoly as a kid, weirdly. You know, I looked at the price of the house and looked at the rent and, you know, unless I was no mathematician or anything else, but it just going, well, okay, the, I think the, the rent at the time, and it hasn't changed much, but the rent was about £450. The house I bought for 62000 I think it was, sixty or 62000 I just worked out there, yeah. Listen, all you need to do is rent it out. The longer it's rented out, you know, here's the mortgage, here's the rent, and, and leave it alone. You know, that there was sort of, I had a cousin and, a, and a, an uncle who were heavily involved in property as well. So, you know, there was always that thing of going, it's a great asset. I didn't particularly know what an asset was. I could barely even work out the yields and stuff at that time. But it just made sense to me, you know, down to the basic mathematics. Here's the rent, here's the mortgage, here's what's left over, and just keep going. And that's what I did. So at 20, that was, that was the first property in, and things sort of spiraled on from there, really. You, you say the property, you, you understood property, but what fascinated you about going into it and buying it and, and renting it? I love the passive nature of it. You know, the fact of, like anyone that says, you know, God, if you can multitask, and, and like I say, now I would know it as, you know, as a passive income, as a multiple source of income, but it's the fact that I could go away, you know, when you, when you buy a property, you don't move into it, you know, your tenant moves in, and you have a conversation maybe once a month, maybe not even, you know, and, and it was the fact that it was kind of, there and it can be growing and building at that time as well and it's important to say at the time you know that was early 2000s and and property prices were starting to increase at that time you know there were there probably were there was on a, a fairly steady rise it didn't get silly for another couple of years after that but uh, that steady rise and I just thought you know what it's, it's there and you know if I, I could move into it if I wanted to or just rent it out so it was just it was really simple math it literally came down to here's the house here's the mortgage and there's the rent you know and, and I didn't really think much more about it than that to be honest and I think when you're young, you don't have the, you know, you don't have the knowledge of a, of a recession or the fear or the things that can happen, you know. So sometimes, you know, the, the, the ignorance of youth, which is, you know, is, is meant to be complimentary, but the ignorance of youth actually helps you to get out there and, and do stuff that you're not afraid because I wasn't afraid. I just did it. So, yeah, it was a, it just, yeah, it was just logical sense for me to really to do that. Why did you like Monopoly? <sighs> I think it was very binary. It was just... I had this had this really weird habit too. I love to collect all the one pound notes. It's just like I think it was uh it, it it's the fact that you collected rent all the time and I think you could build up and you know, very much the you know, the scaling side. I mean, I never understood my strategy was to go around the board, I bought everything I landed on. I mean, you know, no matter what you had to do, you would mortgage, you would, you know, sort of dip and dive and do whatever you could do to, to get the property because once you had the property then you have choices. But if you didn't have that you know, you, you wanted always having something that could make money. You know, an asset makes money while you sleep or it does, you know, almost, you know, it needs to be independent of you. And that was the thing is like, well, I need to have that property and then I can collect rent. The more rent I can collect, then the more property I can buy. And I actually, I genuinely don't know where it came from and something, you know, might need to look into, but it was just that logical thing of going, well, you know, having a property and, and collecting the rent. It was really only a couple of years later when I bought, you know, the second one, which again was a very simple mathematical equation. At that point, it was going, well, I either buy somewhere and live in it or I pay a guest house you know so I either pay their mortgage or I pay my own mortgage so it's like well I'll, I'll pay my own thanks very much after having you know this very quickly I got you know two and three and then there is a bit of work involved in managing them and then after that you might as well go listen if I've got two you might as well have ten that's kind of what happened basically you know which I, I know sounds and I, I mean it very genuinely but you know like anything with scale comes you know opportunity comes it actually gets easier because you know, it's easier to justify accountancy fees because if they're running, you know, two properties or 10 properties, it's, you know, it's not exponentially more expensive. So it actually becomes easier with scale. So quite quickly, I realized that. But the great thing was it, it worked away while I continued, you know, 2001 or 2002, it must have been maybe 2001, I left university. Yeah, 60, uh, I think it was 60 odd applications I put out there. And, and I think I got, it was two or three responses. 
one was a thanks but no thanks one was a can you come to an interview day and, and the other one was I think no it was an interview as well so all those I was uh, asked to go and sit and, and meet a, a company called Johnson Controls at the time and uh, and it was one of these they did a you know a day of aptitude tests and, and all sorts and basically if you were still sitting in the room at the end of the day you were you were good to go basically which I we all figured out you know because people were yeah sort of going missing through the day they, they sort of been singled out and said not this time so I was at that point then it was literally told I was going to be going to work in a place called Rochester in Kent uh, which is for anyone that doesn't know is, is just on the east side of London sort of outside the M25. I arrived down there with a with a bag and my life in, in the back of the car and uh, I ended up being there for six or seven years in the end maybe more yeah and I ended up I think I bought about 20 odd properties down there at that time yeah interesting. Like what made you go and apply for that that company and go then work in the U- the UK? Honestly, I just put I put CVs out to, to everywhere that seemed to be buying or to be you know employing at the time. Unfortunately, I don't think it was a it was a strategy per se. It was just it was kind of a you know sort of throw enough mud at the wall and something will stick. And it's kind of one of those things. I mean, always sort of secondary school for me. I was it was a bit like a duck out of water anyway. You know, I just I don't know that I was particularly in the right place. You know, my my secondary school and university and all the rest was quite heavily influenced by my parents in a very supportive way. But I think retrospectively, the problem is I should have taken more control, more decisions myself. Because at that age, you know, you are very susceptible, and when you don't know any any better, you'll you'll take on the opinion of those around you. Yeah, so that's, I really, it was one of those things where you sort of go, right, well, there's a job and here's somebody that's said yes, so let's go and do that. It wasn't through love or passion or whatever, it was, to be honest, it was down to, they've got a job and I need a job, so let's go, you know. And in working in that job, what did it teach you about yourself? It actually taught me loads, to be honest. You know, the, the company is actually very good. It's an American-based company and, you know, they were quite big. Uh, I went on to, it was a graduate fast track program. I mean, it was great in terms of, presentation skills to all that but quite quickly I, I naturally rose anyway you know I was I was just I was just determined I've always had that thing of you know if you're going to do a job you know really roll up the sleeves and get stuck in and you know like anything it, it's not about it's about the service it's not about the pay it's not about that I mean I, I think quite quickly in I mean I had four guys working for me outside of work in terms of you know we would buy properties that smelt a bit funny and looked a bit funny so we would have you know four guys there renovating painting doing everything so then I would come into work and I would be doing, you know, a full day's work uh, in there as well. You know, so I, I really burnt the candle at both ends. It's paying dividends now, but, you know, in work I loved it too because it was, you know, you got to see big projects and you got to see, you know, corporate clients and things like that. So it, for me, it was the best of both worlds. I was building my own assets and then I was also, you know, building a, a great career with the company as well. Thankfully, they they sort of recognized that and I, I promoted, got promoted quite heavily and quickly in that as well. So I actually... Just in thinking that, I, I remember sitting down with my manager at the time. I can, funny, I can still remember his face, but I wasn't shy about asking for a pay rise or an increase in position. You know, you were generally having to hold me down and, and just trying to stop me. His answer was, sure, what do you need? What do you need the money for? Because I had the property. I think I was, I think it was 25 at the time. You know, and this guy, probably at the time he would have been mid 40s. I was a real in- insight. You know, it's like, I mean, bearing in mind, pre the, the crash, you could get 80, 90% mortgages. You know, so there was loads going on. I was refinancing because the housing market was increasing so quickly. I was able to refinance, pull my money back out again. So I buy a house, you know, you do it up, make it look pretty or whatever, get the tenants in, leave it six months, maybe even shorter. Or, and then you'd refinance and you'd have your deposit cash back in your hand and you go and buy the next one, the next one, the next one. It's, it's one of those things where people, what people see, so the people were seeing all these properties I was buying and, you know, there's a lot going on, but so too is the debt. You know, the, now it's, it's good debt, you know, because it, it's secured debt. But that manager was, you know, had the attitude of someone very much, you know, here's this young sort of upstart almost, you know, and it's almost like you don't deserve it. You know, why do you want more money? So you, you have plenty of money. And it's like, well, actually, that just showed the naivety of that person. You know, in fact, I, I probably needed the money more than anyone else because of my ambitions and also, you know, the debt that I was accruing and things like that. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how other people judge you. I actually stopped because at first you do, you know, it was a bit of an ego thing. Oh, I've just bought another house and you tell people and all the rest. And quite quickly, and someone actually advised me, it was an, a, a prior manager to that. He says, listen, he says, unfortunately, you're going to have to stop telling people. 
because you're going to get jealousy you're going to get people that don't think it's fair you're going to think you know that you don't deserve it stuff like that and and it's funny you mention that because that's it's just coming up into my head and and how i stopped you know i stopped actually telling people about that uh, weird thing is i stopped shaving so i was clean shaving all the time so saying you're going to stop shaving because strategically i was able to compete quite early on at, at a quite a high level the problem is i looked like a young fella so the perception is when you go into the corporate world is like you got to you know you almost have to have a bit of gray hair before you get respected so then I, literally i would sort of have a you know always have a bit of a beard and and yeah i would stop telling people what i do and, and i would just get on and that's kind of what i had to do which sounds a bit bizarre but yeah i almost had to present myself in one way and, and sort of downplay what i was doing so interesting times over that period of time the property market dipped and hide but did you often do another job at that time or did you stay with that company and and then kind of continue the buying and selling of property i stayed with them i think it's all in i was with them for about six or seven years i think it was so like i said the first property came in in 2000 and 2005 i stopped buying and it wasn't for lack of wanting i really wanted to because at that point like i said i bought about 20 properties at that point and i mean it, you talk about teamwork so i have a there's a, a lady called margaret MacGyver, and she she did it all she's based here in northern ireland family friend and and so much but she was my financial advisor thanks to her you know she was kind of like my guardian angel and other things so we constantly working together in terms of sorting out the finance and doing all that and and 2005 i mean at the time i was probably on 50 60 grand as a you know i, I bounced out of graduation and the numbers didn't work you know the house numbers so the rent coming in and the, and the price we were buying at and the deposits and all that just the formula stopped working but of course anyone that remembers that time sort of 2005 six and seven you know it's, it's almost there was this desperation in the air it's like god if i don't buy into the ladder you know into the property ladder now i'm never going to be able to afford a property because it was it was increasing at such a rate it really was you know and there was, there was times like at one point you know it's like it was a couple of hundred quid a day you know house prices were going up which you know when when it compounds um it's it's crazy thanks to her basically and and the math and all the rest and i got extremely busy i was now working at this point in the center of london i was doing silly hours i was you know i was commuting you know leaving the house at five in the morning and wasn't getting home till nine o'clock at night and trying to catch up with the guys doing the work in the house as well and you know i was it was a one-track thing and i used used to describe it's like burning the candle from both ends it's like it looks great you've two you know you've twice the amount of light but the problem is it's uh, it's only one candle and it's going to something's going to happen at some point yeah so i mean market went crazy i was getting frustrated because I, I couldn't you know i couldn't buy more i didn't you know i wouldn't didn't want to break my own formula um and thankfully i was just super busy with 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 work in london at the time as well and 2007 2008 happened to be honest i didn't really skip a beat because for me it was quite simple is the houses look after themselves and i look after myself you know so the job that i had i said well that's that's my play money and that's also to buy more houses but in terms of upkeep of the the, the housing market the portfolio well that's separate you know so that you know we just the two of us work separately and it worked for me I, i've never only until recently have i actually pulled an income out of the properties you know but that's sort of built up over like say got to 20 years now in 2007 2008 did you were you hit badly by the economic crash in the housing market it's really hard to say Aaron, to be quite honest because negative equity is a state of mind you know it's like people talk about oh i'm in negative equity it's like well you're not you know and it's a bit like saying well how much is the house worth you know it's like well it's worth what you get for it on the day you sell it you know you can sit here and say it's worth i don't know a hundred thousand but if someone who pays you ninety thousand for it well that's worth ninety thousand or someone who pays you 120 it's worth so you know you, your ego can jump in and say god if you know i've got this much property and i've got this you know and you're kind of going you've got nothing till the day you sell it you, you know you don't really have anything you know and bear in mind that the bank owns 50 60 70 80 percent of it whatever it is so what did happen all that time is the you know the debt level stayed the same you know or reduced as you know as paying off the mortgage but obviously the property values increased and just surely through time and things like that you know the debt staying the same so the property price did come down it never mine never dropped below the value that they would have been you know if i had sold them so i was never in negative equities as such which to be honest, it didn't matter for me because I'm on a buy and die strategy anyway. I have no intention of selling the properties. You know, it's like if you had a machine there that sat and, you know, made you a bit of rent- rental income every week and also then it, it sort of increased in value, you know, because property is one of the few things that e- increases in value. 
you know, cars decrease. You buy a car and then it, you drive it off the forecourt, it drops in value. You know, you drive it round and go crazy in it, and then it goes down in value again, and then it's three or four or five years older, which property does the reverse. You know, property sitting there going, well, I have a house, and maybe it was my parents' house or some other house, and actually, God, you remember, you know, that house was bought for £10,000, and now it's £200,000, you know? Now, there is inflation, there's other things going on there, but you have assets and you've got liabilities. A car, you know, there's so many things. Holidays are all liabilities. They're lovely, but they're liabilities. They do not make money. They, in fact, they lose money. Whereas assets, you took on the other side and saying, well, that's the one where all I have to do is hold on to the keys. You know, and that's the one thing through the recession that someone said to me, it was like, all you have to do is just collect the rent and pay the mortgage. That's all you got to do. And negative equity is a state of mind. Everything is a state of mind. So it's just, that's all you have to do. Collect the rent, pay the mortgage, keep your head down, keep yourself clean. And that's exactly what happened. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how time drifts on. Next thing you know, five years have passed, seven years have passed. Yeah, I literally, uh, I did that. And, and again, I was I was flat out working in London too at the time. So, and you get a little bit older, so you get a bit more, a little bit more cautious too. You know, when you see a recession and everything that's going on and you're going, God, that was a bit of a close call. So unfortunately, you know, age and experience can slow you down as well. You know, my, my early 20s, I was considered myself unstoppable. You know, was I dangerous? I don't know. Uh, you know, it's the hindsight because, you know, I, I, I did stuff. I mean, I bought a house on two credit cards. <laughs> it's just, it, was, it was crazy stuff. But at the time, it's, it's like anyone who has a vision and a mission is like, whatever, whatever it takes, you know. It was actually a really smart asset. It was a really smart way of doing it. And, and the house, I mean, literally doubled in value, you know. So I did very well out of the deal. You know, and that's one of the few that I actually sold and moved on and things like that, you know. But, you know, people say, oh, how did you do it? And it's like, well, it was a very different time too, pre the recession. Uh, there was a thing called self-certain mortgages and things like that. So, but I had a real thirst and a drive. And then really, you know, sort of the amount of time and energy I gave to, to working in London. And I, I gave it my heart and my soul and I was traveling a lot to uh, projects in Scotland and uh, Manchester and, and even abroad. I went full blast into it and really um, it was good. You know, through the recession as well, there was a lot going on. You know, was a, there really was a lot going on. And um, yeah, I was on a, on a one-way path at that point, but I didn't even realize I thought I was invincible. You know, so it's amazing how things come around eventually. When did that stage of your life when you realized you weren't invincible? There was a couple of things happened, but probably actually in, in 2010, my father passed away. Again, unfortunately, cancer again. Strangely, I mean, he didn't last as long. I think it was about nine months my dad had through through that. And it was weird. And I've always sort of said, if I had stayed in London much longer, I'd say another, and I probably wouldn't even say another two years in London, I would have been in a straight jacket. You know, it was great. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't excessively socializing, but I was working a lot. You know, I really was, you know, and there's other people who are socializing a lot more. My attitude was, if I work hard between 20 and 30, then I don't need to work anywhere near as hard in 30 to 40 and 50. You know, so really I was, in my mind, I am banking and building and banking and building is constantly building up assets, building up assets. Like I say, 2010, my dad was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. So it's like in the throat or in the stomach. Like I say, he didn't get as long, unfortunately. And... I went through that and, you know, even with work and, and I was home, you know, and, and when he was in the hospital and stuff was going on and I ended up, you know, we didn't know what to do. You know, he, he'd gone unconscious and there was all sorts. And anyway, I ended up flying back to London and of course I literally had landed and I just, I was standing in the office and I got the phone call. The dad had passed away and dropped everything, went home and, you know, going through the funeral and things like that and I'll never forget because about three days later, my client phoned me and I had a, I had a particularly high stress job it was high stress in some ways but it was always it was high responsibilities maybe a better way of putting it so i was always out on client sites which meant you always had to be in your, your top top form the client phoned me three days in and more or less going listen i'm sorry to hear about your dad and this is us no problem and literally the second breath was when are you back it was just one of those things and, and i can't remember what i was literally we were organizing the funeral or something at that point at that time it was like i just i was like i'll be at least two weeks you know, that's, I just blurted it out. But I remember just thinking, it's like going, do you know what, they really don't care. It's just an inconvenience. That sort of, you know, I, I did, I came back, it was about two weeks later and that went on. And again, I just went into numbness, you know, and it's like, thankfully this time, it wasn't straight away, but I did realize that this numbness and I recognized it from, from my mum from the first time. And it was about six months later. It was weird because I'd have been sitting in sort of highbrow meetings and, you know, fairly intense 
things and we were working on global projects and people going, this is, you know, this has to happen today. This is almost life and death and all the rest. And I'm sitting there going, no, it's not. It's really not. You know, and there, it could be some part of a project or something they deliver. And my, my whole scale had shifted, you know, because everyone's sitting here going, you know, this, this job and it, it has to be done. This has to be done. And it's kind of going, do you know what? It really doesn't matter. You know, if it happens tomorrow, so what? You know, it's it's not life or death. It's you know, it's a real change of of you know what was going on in scale. The, probably the final thing that sort of changed my mind was I was working in Canary Wharf at the time and going down into the tube station. It was quite late. I was getting like one of the last tubes of the day, and anyone that knows it, you go down and everyone's standing at the doors, all very regimented as you do in London. It's all you know, jammed onto trains and lining up and queuing and all this. And anyway, the the, the tannoy came on in, in the underground station. Says, "Sorry, folks, the train's going to be a bit late. We have a jumper." A jumper for anyone that doesn't know is some some poor person has jumped in front of the train. They've taken their own life. And across the platform, there was just a groan. You know, there was no. You know, there's tutting, groaning and all this, and you're going, some poor person has got to the absolute end of their tether and done this. And the response in this arena is inconvenience. You know, how inconvenient, that's just going to slow me down. And God, you know, and at that point, it was a bit like Crocodile Dundee. I don't know if you ever remember it. He, I think he came up to, was it New York or something? I can't remember which city. I think it was New York, you know, and he came up and was like, do you ever feel like a, you know, an outsider in a strange land? That's at that moment I felt like that. I was going, there is no compassion here. Everyone's just going, whatever that person did, that's just going to mean I'm going to get home late. You know, at that point, mentally, I clocked out at that point. Amazingly, literally, and I, I thought it was going to take years to get me out of there just with my contracts and things like that. I can't, I literally, it was within a couple of weeks. I'm from me making a decision and getting home. It was three days. I literally arrived home and was going, what just happened? How have I extricated myself out of London after nearly 10 years? Yeah, it was, it was lovely. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't go back for the world either. It was a, it was a different chapter. Interesting as well. I mean, it was, that was about six months after my, my father passed away. And I quite quickly realized that actually my dad liked my career more than I did, which sounds strange, you know, and, and even because when I, I changed changed companies as well, and, you know, it was weird that my dad would sort of say, you know, make sure you ask for more money or you ask for a new position or do this, you know, and that was almost, you know, that was a core driver. And it was it was also a talking point between us as well, you know, you know, because you don't have to talk about the emotional stuff then, talk about your career, talk about something you've achieved or whatever, you know, which is great. And, you know, it's not it's not taken away from my dad in any way because it was incredibly supportive. So, yeah, six months after he's gone, it's like, well, I've, I've no one to tell. It's like, I actually don't really want this anymore, you know, and I was seriously getting, they got their pound of flesh out of me, you know, and, and I, I, listen, I don't regret it for the for the world, but like I say, I, I just wouldn't go back now. It's not worth the price that I paid. So, um, but yeah, you know, and then I, I sort of arrived home, bags and all, and hadn't a clue what I was going to do, but that was another chapter. When you arrived home after realizing you, you're finished the, the roller coaster of the workforce, how did you and your family can adapt to the next chapter of your life? I mean, in fairness, because at that point then it was only myself and my sister, you know, my, both my mom and my father are gone, you know, and my sister's always been my sister and, you know, my surrogate parents and all the rest. So, you know, at that point I arrived home and, and you know, incredibly supportive, really were very supportive. And I took, probably took about six months out. And that's, like I say, I don't, I only realise now how close I was to burnout and I see it and I remember even that you look back and having conversations and as you do there was there was a guy on the train I remember talking to him one day and um, you know it's weird people don't realise although there's millions of people and loads of trains and all the rest that actually people get on the same train at the same time sit in the same seat you know and, and they're real sort of regimented and structured you know and chatting to this guy and I'm going god I don't know how you do it you know and it's you know this is just depressing why was you you know if this was all I had to do in life and I was going to keep doing this you know I'd been doing it for two years that particular journey I was like you know I just feel sad for them you know it's like because there's nothing else because I, I would have commuted back and forwards for, to Ireland at the weekend and sitting in the train this guy goes yeah right enough he says I've, I've only done this for 25 years and I was like, uh, well, one, I'll stop talking. Um, but two, it's like 25 years. It's like, and this was like a two-hour journey in, a two-hour journey home. That's four hours a day. Plus, you know, you have your eight hours. Now, nobody did eight hours. Everyone was doing nine and 10 hours. So you work that out mathematically and you go, right, well, even just do you, do your eight hours a day. And then you add on four hours of commute time. That's 12 hours a day. You then sleep for, you know, four hours, um, eight hours. You know, so you're up to, to, what's that, 20 hours. So you've got four hours to do everything else in your life, you know, and, and this is the thing, it was just baffling me. It's like, why the hell would you do this? 
the deceptive thing is, you know, everyone goes, oh, but you're on a great London salary. And it's like, yeah, but it costs a fortune. You know, the, the train ticket, it was, you know, a cost of fortune, you know, the cost of transport, everything costs a fortune. But so you had to earn the big money to pay the big money. Coming back home, I mean, there's a number of things went on, but I ended up sort of joining a very good friend of mine and, and you know, actually people which I'd sort of grown up. We grew up on a farm and it was it was two farms side by side and we grew up on this this farm and I worked with them when I was a young fella, loved it, loved working on the farm and, and all that. And anyway, in the meantime, life had moved on and, and they set up a new renewable energy business. So I ended up going down and working there and, and, you know, we took the business and we grew it. But it was weird. I remember my salary literally was about a quarter. You know, it was a quarter of what it was in London. And the first couple of months, I was almost, you know, taking the freaky position going, God, this is going to hurt, you know, it's like, because I'm, I'm not earning the big money and, you know, I've got mortgages and I've got everything else going on. And now, I'm, you know, my property's over there. I'm over here and all this. And you know what? The impact never came. I was on a quarter of the salary. You know, that sort of doomsday of it all coming to an end never happened simply because, you know, my, my commute time had gone from two hours down to 20 minutes, you know, 25 if it was a bad day. So suddenly I had literally hours back in the day. You know, I didn't have the cost of tubes and trains and I was paying, like I was thinking it was like 850 quid for a room, you know, in a shared house, you know, and that's, you know, that's just for a room over here that would get you, you know, that's a decent mortgage in a decent house, you know. So you forget. So all that came in and suddenly I, I you know, was able to sort of catch my breath a bit. But even through that, you know, the, the, sort of the depression was underlying at that point as well. You know, there was, there was a number of things going on. Thankfully, this time I'd actually spotted it and I knew I knew my mood was down. I knew it was sort of that, that flatness was about again, you know. Uh, believe me, I was a lot quicker to act the second time. But it is, it's, it's kind of weird when you, you know, losing members of your family and stuff's going on. So, um, yeah, but we, we grew that business and, and really for the next seven, eight years, you know, took the company from strength to strength and a lot of the practices I'd learned in London, you know, I mean, I went from a company that had about 10,000 in, in the company to a company of 10, you know, there was no HR division. The accountancy team was Helen, <laughs> you know, who's like my sister, you know, so she was there. So it was just totally different. The scale was different. You know, we didn't have marketing departments or anything else. It was just smaller, but it actually meant you were very light and you're very agile. You were able to move quickly. So a lot of the practices came with me and it was, you know, super interesting. And to be honest, it was probably, it really sort of helped sort of cure my soul a bit, you know, just really to try and get, get a bit of balance back. Like I it, it was, it was interesting times. It sounds like an interesting time to go from a company that's massive to a small company, but you probably grew that to, to a level where you felt some accomplishment of, of growing a small company to something medium or big. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we took the company and ultimately when it all sort of came to a very slam stop, we are up to about two and a half million turnover on between direct and indirect staff. We were on about 25 odd staff. You know, so it was great. I mean, the market was there and there was, there was loads going on, but it was a it was a solid business anyway. You know, I, I loved it. I mean, I learned loads about, you know, taking it online, you know, so doing a lot of online shops and stuff like that. And that was almost like pet projects for me. But again, it was always that, that entrepreneur has always been in me. You know, it's I can't just, people just say, oh, just sit there and do your job. And it's like, I can't, <laughs> I've got to, I've got to reinvent something or do something or make it go quicker, faster, better, uh, pushing the, the, the boat out, you know, and what can you do you know what can i do better could i you know can i do it smarter can we deliver more service can i that was always there and then there was a in northern ireland there was a, a scandal called the the cash for ash scandal so for anyone that's not aware of it basically there was um there was a government incentive that was launched for biomass boilers so they're you know boilers that work on renewable energy sources as such and long story short the the government got it wrong in terms of the incentive so what happened is the whole industry was accelerated when this this grant was launched it's about two or three years into the grant into the government you know the grant being launched they realized this and they had to slam the door shut not only did they slam the door shut in terms of the the industry but then they also retracted it so they basically took a 20-year promise you know a 20-year contract with people and they ripped it up and said didn't work sorry this is not for us now the problem is it accelerated the business and accelerated the industry to such a point that actually it was you know they annihilated the the industry on the way out so as a result no one survived you know we held on for nearly two years hoping and thinking and you know trying to trying to you know sort of change and evolve but it just couldn't happen you know i think at that point is you know i, I think mentally as well that you know Again, I was tired, you know, we'd worked bloody hard. And, you know, it's hard when the government put a promise in place and you think, God, if, you know, I can trust the government. Well, actually, in this instance, you couldn't. 
you know, although it was their incentive and all the rest, but actually it was, um, yeah, they got their fingers wrong. Yeah, it's basically 20, more or less 2017. It, it, yeah, we, we sort of called time. So we just couldn't do it. Yeah, so unfortunately, literally we can we can point to the day that the business died. In hindsight, you know, were, were we diverse enough? Circumstance happen around you and some of them can be fatal, but also I'd say we, we also weren't diverse enough. We invested more in our customers than we did in ourselves. We weren't taking the attitude of paying ourselves first. You know, we we're paying ourselves last, which, you know, we, we were a hell of a lot more involved than most in the industry. And had things kept going, we would have been in a very strong position, you know, because you know, I looked at a lot of, in terms of remote management and remote monitoring and things like that. So we had some of the smartest equipment out there, you know, to keep our overheads down, to, you know, uh, our running costs down, etc. If it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have been able to keep going for two years. But the problem with those two years is we should have made a decision. We should have closed the doors. We should have certainly done a, a drastic change a lot sooner. You know, it's just the cost of not making a decision. What people don't always realize is not making a decision is a decision. You've decided not to decide. And during that time, things move on. You know, interest payments keep going, staff costs keep going, everything keeps going. And so all that really happened is we had a war chest of cash and we just burnt through that in two years until the point there was no money left. And then we had to basically let all the staff go, staff and customers. Do you know, I, I remember quite clearly, you know, most customers were, you know, we they knew roughly the situation and we had pre-warned them, you know, said this is coming, but we want to make sure all the warranties were good. And, you know, we support them in every way we could and all the rest. But we had some customers that were just, you know, when we told them that we were no longer, you know, because we either let the staff go or we we're no longer able to trade or whatever, you know, and they were, again, it was back to the whole thing of going, well, that's bloody inconvenient, isn't it? And you're like, do you realize for the last two years we've held on here to try and support you? And, you know, it's almost like thinking about it, it's like coming back to the train station and people going, somebody's jumped in front of the train. That's really inconvenient to me. You know, no connection to, that's, you know, that's really hard. But it's back in this situation where it's like something has happened and as a result we're laying people off and, you know, we're closing the doors and we're doing all this, not knowing what's going to happen next. And 90% were fantastic and very understanding, and, you know, as understanding as you can be. But there was always that element of going, people have gone, yeah, well, that's inconvenient. You know, what am I supposed to do now? And it's like, I don't really know. But all I can tell you is we've just laid off a lot of staff. You know, we've just changed everything. You know, we've no money to do anything else. You can see it from both sides, to be honest, you know. But again, really from that point on, and to be honest, I've, I've held that to this day. Is like I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm much more careful the way I set up my businesses, the way I, I you know, systemize it, automate it, you know, the number of staff, the way we trade, what products I do all the rest has changed drastically you know so i've learned a hell of a lot in a good way in a really good way so from 2017 when the company closes what do you do next to just go into podcasting or do you kind of figure out what what is the next plan in, in your life stage there was a number of things i mean probably a massive turn i had an itch i just you know it was around that time i was sort of going you know when when the rug's been pulled from under your feet or it felt that way and, and in some ways you know we're all responsible for ourselves but I ended up in, in Mar- it must have been March 17, no, maybe April 17, at a Tony Robbins seminar in uh, London. I didn't know what I wanted and I have no idea what it was like, but I knew I wanted something. It's, it's the knowing bit is going, there must be more than this. You know, I think even with the company, I'm like, well, how does somebody, I mean, you take even say Richard Branson, for example. So here's one person whatever his background but this man has 400 odd companies and he spends half his day windsurfing around his his private island you know and you're kind of going he was born naked and screaming i was born naked and screaming yes okay he might have had a few more bits and pieces than that but at the same time he's only one person and this is where i couldn't get into my head is going how is it that one person can get up and strive and take over the world and and do all this and yet one other person stands up and you know changes the channel the TV and does nothing and, and even then it was weird it's like the, the whole fire in the belly thing probably mentally was almost the seed had been dropped there very early form of the seed he was going how does you know how does one person thrive and you know survive and the next person doesn't so anyway I ended up in Tony Robbins in, in London and there was a lot changed there was a lot changed it was really weird I mean I had to get away from 
you know, the environment I was in, you know, just to sort of try and see new lands and see new things. And, and I saw a lot there and it was, it was really sort of a, a start of a journey for me. And I came back home and anyone that's been to Tony Robbins seminar is very high energy and is, you know, it's good. You know, it's not sort of one magic pill and that's it over, you know. I only then sort of started realizing it's, it's the start of a journey. I got back home and it was great. The energy sort of held there, but then as it does, it sort of tends to peter off of it. And it's at that point then I was looking at the property I had and, you know, time had sort of moved on as well. And, and again, I was sort of slightly of the mentality. I was, I was tired. You know, I was tired of the, the business, you know, we'd had a long slog, we'd been laying off staff, you know, and, and fighting and pushing and pulling all the time. And, you know, with the fight of growing the business, then the fight of letting go of the business. And so I went over to England to, to a training company to learn about property. And, and to be honest, I was going there to try and minimize the impact of, of basically getting rid of all properties I had, you know, same you know, what's the most cost-effective way of me basically bringing my life back to the simplest, clearest form, you know, because having 20 plus properties is not simple. It's not complicated. I mean, I, I do it, so I, I know it. But um, to the average person, they're like going, how do you sleep at night? Well, I generally sleep okay-ish. So it doesn't doesn't bother me. But anyway, I arrived in, in England to look to see how we could sort of wind down the property side until I actually realized that actually very quickly was going, Never mind, you know, this thing I'm seeing is inconvenient, is an asset bank. And I had bought the properties maybe 20 years beforehand. You know, at the time it was 16, 17 years, whatever. And you're kind of going, you forget what's happened. So some of the stuff there that I might have bought a house at 70, 80, 100,000 or something. Of course, now we've been through a recession as well, you bear in mind. But some of those houses that were bought at 80,000 were now worth 200, 220,000. You know, now they're worth what they're worth. I don't know because, like I say, I'm not, I'm not out to sell them. But it's amazing to, to say to anyone that's doing it is like, you know, again, this is what an asset does. An an asset increases in value, you know, through time. So actually, my doing nothing with the property in all that time, you know, it's 2017. Like I say, it was you forget everything had been revalued and done, and and it, it's it had grown. So actually, ironically, the stuff and the hard work I'd done in my 20s suddenly, you know, in, in the more or less the 10 odd years that and it was 10 odd years that, you know, I hadn't been in property. Suddenly I realized that actually it had been worth it, you know, and it's that compound effect by having the property, by putting the work in, just keep collecting the rent and pay the mortgage and do all that. Well, suddenly it, it all sort of, I started to realize that I wasn't sitting on something that was a, an inconvenience. I was sitting on a bit of an asset bank, you know, so I felt a bit better there, you know, because obviously then, you know, with the business and, and what was going on there. And it was kind of at that point as well, and again, going to Tony Robbins and things like that, and, and there was a number of things happened, but I just started to hang going, listen, I need to sort of step off, or I need to change gear here. Again, because I'm back to going, I can't do what I did in my 20s. I can't sort of work any harder, because at that point as well, my my first, first child had been born when she was going through teething. You know, like I said, my sleep's okay, okay at the best times, and when somebody's screaming at you in the night, well, suddenly, between that and losing the business and everything else, I started grinding my teeth in the night, and I still have a missing tooth to this day, which is from that. And I thought, I this we have to do something different. You know, I'm not working smart. I'm working hard, but I'm not working smart. I didn't know how. I didn't know when. That's when, like I say, with the property training, I then uh, I ended up buying more property. So through joint ventures and a number of things, we brought on a number of investors and I actually ended up doubling the number of property I had. So instead of trying to get rid of them, I ended up <laughs> buying twice as many. But I had a formula and this is what I realized, you know, in the, in the benefit of hindsight, thank God, you know, there's the stuff that I had done and 20 years of experience has taught me. And even through this COVID again, it's gone, my formula has stood strong, even through this, you know, this period that we're in now. And it's amazing how, you know, things go on there. But as a result, the property, it's, like I say, you don't buy property every day of the week. So I had a bit more time hands. Really from there, I thought, right, let's let's try a bit of development, you know, personal development. And that's really where I went through, you know, a number of things from hypnotherapy to, uh, there's a Bob Proctor program through, you know, and at one point I think I had five mentors. The whole thing was just, why not? You know, why not give it a go? You know, I have 37 and a half years of being average, as I call it, you know. So, I mean, you more or less take those 37 and a half years and double it. And that's probably give or take my, my predicted lifespan. So you kind of go, right, well, I've been average for the first 37 and a half and I'm really tired. What am I going to do for the next 37 and a half? Because I can't do it the way I've done it. Well, I can, but it's what's going to happen. You know, I can pretty much predict where I'm going to end up. But what if for the next 37 and a half years, I turned up earlier, I worked 
harder or smarter. You know, I tried something different. You know, because I know where I can get to and I knew where I'd been in my career and all the rest. And going, going, you know, with other people that, you know, it's like if you wanted the promotion, you had to work harder or again, do more and more and more and more, you know. And I'm going, I'm getting burnt out here. I've got, you know, my, my twin girls at that point, I think, have been born as well. Or they were due. And, and uh, I was going, I can't. I cannot work any harder. Being a bit of a slow learner, I had to sort of almost go, right, what is the formula? What's the difference? You know, how is it some people work nonstop and achieve one thing? And yet other people don't appear to be working that hard at all and they achieve a lot more. And I sort of put it down to, to really mentorship. I thought, well, if I can do, you know, if I can get myself into an optimum position and, and a, you know, sort of in a, in a place of that I can perform to the best of my abilities, well, that's bound to help. And that's pretty much what happened. And again, I started, I was asking a lot of questions inside and outside and what if, and I was looking at successful people and what's going on. And it was around February last year, I asked myself for the first time, and it happened to be, I had the twins in the pram and, and the dog, and we were out for a walk, and as you do, and I was just sort of asking, what is, you know, what's this thing about gut feeling and gut instinct? And, you know, people talk about this fire in the belly and, you know, your passion and stuff like that, you know, and it's going, why, why would you be passionate? And, you know, it was all playing in my head. I was trying to really put, put my thoughts around, you know, and then for some reason it came back, you know, this passion, you know, what's fire in the belly? It's like, oh, damn. Every entrepreneur, every person has this fuel and this hunger and this ability in them, you know, but why is, why is it some people go crazy and take over the world and other people do nothing? You know, what's the difference? You know, what, what gives them their passion, their, you know, their fire in the belly? You know, what is fire in the belly? And fire in the belly, and that for some reason, fire in the belly, because I loved it as a little term, you know, fire in the belly, it's a bit quirky, but yeah, people sort of quite often understand it. It sort of grew quite quickly and I thought, right, you know what, I can actually write a wee book about fire in the belly. It grew, and then at a similar time, I discovered that I was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. So the dyslexia, I kind of always knew it was there, but I got it diagnosed properly for the kids, really. And uh, for some reason, you know, with the fire in the belly, says, right, I'm going to write a fire in the belly. I'm going to write a book. And then through the dyslexia, I'm like, I'm actually not very good at writing. They were saying there, well, what I am good at doing is interviewing and, and talking. So very quick, because I had a book coach, I'm saying, well, if I want to, if I want to write a book, let's get a book coach because that will fast track the process. Because at this point, I'm hungry and I'm like, I don't want to, I don't have any time to waste. You know, every day, every hour, I want to be speaking to someone, pushing something, trying something, putting it into place. Because I almost feel like I'm, I'm catching up on, on lost years. It was through that, so we we did a lot of sessions and great woman and, and we would record them so very quickly said well what I can do is I can talk it and then I can send the videos or send the, the audio for transcription so because it was this lady Ann Tannum I said you know what you can do is you can talk your book so talk it out they'll transcribe it and then we'll basically we'll have the rough format and structure and then we can get somebody to bash it into shape and there you go there's your book and that was great so very quickly then I thought right well I don't know everything about fire in the belly so I'll, I'll go and chat to some people so chat and first conversation it was three hours god you know we're sitting there and we're chatting and putting the world to rights and what's your passion and what is fire in the belly and this is that and the other three hours I was like, right, okay. And then I had another conversation, I think it was two hours, and then another conversation, it was another two hours. So the point was, we were going to take the highlights of each of those conversations, use the text, put it into a book, and away we go. By coincidence, I was over at a, at a training course. So this was only June last year, so June 19. I was at a, a property training course, and I actually arrived a day early. And I don't know how, but I had ended up booked on this podcast taster course. So it was with the same guys I do the property training with. And I end up sitting in this room and kind of going, podcast, yeah, I'm not really, this is not for me at all. But within the first 15 minutes, I have a credit card on the table that's going, I know there's a sale coming. And I know there's an opportunity here, but I'm buying it. For some reason, it just, all the pennies dropped and going, all those interviews I was doing, and I was potentially going to take 5% or 2% of the conversation and use it from a book. Problem is that was leaving 95% of the conversation on the cutting room floor. Whereas with the podcast, it was perfect. It gave me the opportunity to let people talk about their stories, their passions, their fire in the bellies and do them justice as well. We can still take the highlights and put it into a book and do whatever. So that's really where, and I must look up the date, but yeah, so it was, it was only literally probably about a year ago actually now it's only 12 months so far in the belly is only like I say about 14 15 months old the podcast was only con conceived about a, a year ago and we're really going from strength to strength is there or? did you kind of discover what your belly in the fire is through the process of the podcast i have thought about it and now i think you know one, one thing i have and, and talking to so many people and, and it's great I think when I'm when I'm asked to talk, I talk a lot because so many times, like you at the moment, you know, you're in listening mode, so you learn a hell of a lot. But quite quickly, what I through the process, what I loved was I'm saying my fire in the belly is the fire in the belly process because it actually has an empowerment, an empowerment 
code. It's almost like a hidden power within it. So when you go through the interview process, it's very cathartic. But also then I'm looking at the language and I'm saying to someone, yeah, you know, I used to love doing this, doing that, and doing the other. And when you replay that back to somebody, they're kind of going, yeah, why, why do I not do that anymore? I used to love writing or I used to love doing this or I used to love doing that. So people actually got a lot of power out of the actual process, you know, because it's true. I mean, when's the last time any one of us have had, you know, the chance to sit down and talk about ourselves for two hours in an unbiased way? You know, when you talk to somebody you love or whatever, the problem is they, they one, they'll interrupt you and then two, they'll actually say to you, you know, what's your strength and what you could do and what you couldn't do and you're good at this, you're bad at that. Whereas when you're in the podcast, like, you know, you know, we've spoken before and like, I have no bias. I don't know you that well, you know, so, you know, your success can be whatever it can be. You know, if you have somebody just listening. So very quickly, I thought my power is actually asking the questions and not having a judgment. But at the same time, also being careful not to mind read. You know, if someone says, you know, I really like my red car. So in my head, you know, as we all do, we paint a red car. Now, that red car could be a Porsche, it could be a toy car, whatever. Sometimes you just got to ask the questions that, you know, you can't necessarily see it. But as a result of that, that process, it's actually very empowering for the person because the whole thing of the eye can't see itself and so much more. But, you know, so that's, that's why. So my fire in the belly is the fire in the belly process. I, I love it, I must say. And it's, it's something I've, I've really enjoyed doing. Pete, if someone met you on the street and they asked you one piece of advice, what would it be? It's, it sounds strange, but my dyslexia diagnosis was the biggest favour that ever happened to me because I didn't realise that I didn't enjoy reading or writing. It's not that I can't. I can read and I can write. It's just it's something... I will never do for leisure or pleasure. However, Audible, you know, Audible at one and a half or two times speed has been phenomenal for me. So I'm, I'm much better at listening. So yeah, learn learn how you learn. So when you're creative, when you're into flow, whether that be in the shower, you know, flow is when you're, you're so passionate about something that it just comes out automatically. You don't even think about what you're saying. So when you learn how you learn, I think it's the, the door to a different universe because suddenly you will read more than you've ever read. You will do more than you've ever done. And it's the ability to expand the mind in the easiest, most natural way for you. Pete, where can people find you if they want to hear more or learn more about you? Loads of different ways. Probably the easiest way is to go to fireinthebelly.net. That's where we're holding all the podcasts, a lot of the videos. There's a lot of do a lot of coaching and mentoring. So yeah, fireinthebelly.net is probably the best way and all the usual social media channels. Pete, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming to the show and sharing with you guys. Share, man. It's been fantastic. Thanks very much, Aaron. Really appreciate your time and thanks for having me on. Cool. Brilliant. I'm so Exhale.